The truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. This statement, it sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? It's even been attributed to famous Christian leaders like St. Augustine or even Charles Spurgeon. But regardless of the exact origin of this statement, it's important to understand that this popular quote about the truth being like a lion which needs no defense is actually in conflict with the biblical instructions that we've been given. As a matter of fact, it's in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul tells us that the Lord had appointed him for the defense of the gospel. Not only that, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter, he challenges every believer to always be ready to do what? To give a defense to everyone who asks us to provide them with the reason for why our hope is in Jesus Christ. In light of these verses, we should take a moment to ask then, am I ready to defend the truth of the gospel? Am I ready to offer those who ask a reason for the hope in me, am I ready to present them with a defense for why I believe what I believe? Here in our text today, we find Peter. He's presenting the original recipients of this epistle with a defense. He's presenting them with a defense for why he believes in the promises of God, which we find from Genesis to Revelation. And as we study the scriptures before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the Christian should be ready to, to defend our belief, first of all, in scriptural inspiration. Secondly, we'll see that the Christian ought to be ready to defend our belief in special creation. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the Christian ought to be ready to defend our belief in supernatural resurrection. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Here we find the Apostle Peter. He's defending the promises that we find within the Holy Word of God. And as you're making your way to 2 Peter 3, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. You see, it'll help you to remember that the entire second chapter of this epistle, it was all about the deliverance of the Lord. Peter assured his audience that the Lord is able to deliver us from the deceptive doctrines of the enemy. And he also reminded his readers about the Lord's promise to deal with the deceivers by delivering them as well. The, the, the Peter promised that the Lord would deliver them into unbreakable chains of everlasting darkness as they're sent into eternal punishment. Uh, sadly, those false teachers were quick to mock him. They didn't believe in this promise of punishment. And it's for this reason that Peter now goes on to, uh, to present a defense of God's word. With this as our focus, if you would... Let's turn our attention now to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Peter declares, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, 
by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here in our text today, we find Peter. He's assuring the hearts of those who are beginning to follow after the false teachers. He's assuring them that the word of God that he had presented to them was in fact true. He wanted to assure them that they were incorrect to turn away from the true faith because they were beginning to follow after those false teachers. And in order to understand why they were turning away from the truth, well, it seems to me that their wandering was being caused by their wandering. Their wandering was being caused by their wandering. Or in other words, they were probably wondering, why is it taking so long for the Lord to return and claim the throne of King David? This is what they were waiting for. And many of them thought that you know, this would happen within their own lifetime. And as the years went on, they were beginning to wonder, uh, why is it taking so long? And their impatient wondering turned into their wandering as they began to embrace the doctrines of deceivers. If that is the case, then it's no wonder why Peter felt the need to remind them about the inspiration of God's word so that they might stop wandering away from the truth. With this in mind, if you would look with me again, uh, there at 2 Peter 3, verse 1. There again, Peter declares, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Here in these verses we find Peter, he's helping his audience to understand that he was uh, writing this second epistle in the, with the same goal uh, for the reason why he wrote the first epistle. He's writing both of these epistles in order to encourage every Christian to be mindful of the prophecies that we find in God's word. That word mindful was translated from a Greek word which speaks of the constant remembrance that results in memorization. Peter was encouraging them to continue to bear in mind the prophetic word of God until the words of the prophets were permanently fixed in the recesses of their minds. He's saying, hey, remember the things that have been written and continue bringing them to mind until you have memorized them. Now, just to be clear, the words that he wanted them to memorize are the words spoken before by the holy prophets. These words they're found in the Old Testament. And according to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, listen, there are 1,239 prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. And according to one calculation, 25% of the Bible contains prophetic promises that reveal God's prophetic plan for saving his people from the day of judgment. A fourth of the Bible is focused on prophecy. And this, of course, includes the prophecies that point to the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior, these prophecies which were fulfilled by Jesus and then confirmed by the apostles of Jesus. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll draw your attention once again to verse 2. Here Peter encouraged his audience to be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and 
of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. I like the way that the scholars who created the New American Standard Bible rendered verse 2. Here's how they put it. You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, the prophetic words of the prophets were written in the Old Testament in order to reveal the coming of the promised Messiah. And then the words of the apostles were written in order to confirm for us that this is Jesus. Jesus has, in fact, fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the first advent of our Messiah. This was precisely the point that Peter made back in the first chapter of this epistle. If you would look back at 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to draw your attention to 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 19, where Peter tells us that we have the prophetic word. That's speaking of the Old Testament prophecies. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. According to Peter there, Jesus has confirmed the divine inspiration of the prophetic word, and he did this by fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that point to the first advent of the Messiah. It's for this reason that Peter encouraged the Christians there in the first century to be mindful of God's word. It's again here in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he tells them, be mindful of the, the words of the prophets. Be mindful of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. Remember those prophecies. In this way, Peter was warning us about those who would try to deceive us. If we don't know God's word, then we're easily deceived. And here we find Peter warning us about those who would come along and mock us for believing in the divine inspiration of the Bible. As a matter of fact, let's look back at 2 Peter chapter 3. I would draw your attention once again to verse 3. Here Peter assures his audience that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Now the word scoffers here is translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who make fun of others by mocking them. It's for this reason that the scholars who give us the New American Standard Bible, they render verse 3 in this way. Notice first of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Or in other words, the last days will be marked by an increase of mockers who love to make fun of others. And we must not fail to notice that there is a specific sort of mockery that Peter was referring to. Look with me again. There in verse 3, Peter tells us that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now just to be clear, Peter here is referring to the promise of Christ's second coming. And in order to understand this focused attack of these scoffers that Peter's warning us about, it's important to remember that the Lord Jesus was perfectly clear about the promise of his return. For example, it's in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus declares, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I'm always leery of those who begin to try to tell you exactly when the Lord Jesus is coming back because Jesus himself says it's going to be at a time that you didn't expect it. But clearly Jesus wants us to believe in his return. 
Further evidence of this is found in John chapter 14, where Jesus assured his disciples by declaring, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Without debate, the Lord Jesus clearly presented the promise of his second coming on several occasions. And Peter tells us that there's going to be those who will scoff at this belief. They will mock us for believing it. It's important to note that we find the same promise of Christ's second coming all throughout the New Testament. For example, it's in Acts chapter 1. This was the day when Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, 40 days after his resurrection, and after disappearing into the clouds, uh, there were two disciples who appeared amongst the disciples, uh, two angels, I should say, who appeared amongst the disciples, and they assured the disciples of Christ uh, that the Lord Jesus was going to return in the same way that he left. And so they pointed to the second coming of Jesus in this way. In Hebrews chapter 9, Paul pointed to the day when Christ Jesus will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And in Revelation chapter 19, John presents us with a very detailed description of the day when the king of kings will return and judge the world in righteousness. Sadly, the world is filled with scoffers, though, who reject these promises. They're quick to reject the prophecies that point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And just as Peter promised, there are many unbelievers in the world today who mock our belief in the return of our Redeemer. And knowing that every believer is eventually going to face the antagonistic arguments of those who ridicule our faith in the promise of Jesus' return, I encourage every Christian to learn how to defend the veracity of our sacred scriptures because if you know how to defend the, the divine inspiration of the Bible, then you're better equipped to help the scoffer to see that their scoffing is unfounded. You see, the Christian who is able to defend the divine inspiration of the Bible will be able to silence the scoffers who question the prophetic promise of Christ's second coming. And with this as the goal, I'd like to present you with just a simple argument that we can uh, use in defense of scriptural inspiration. First of all, it's important to note that uh, we have good manuscript evidence that the entire Old Testament was written, canonized, and even translated before the birth of Jesus Christ. We know for a fact, based on empirical evidence, that the entire Old Testament was written, canonized, and translated into Greek before Jesus was born. Why is that important? Well, because if all these prophecies were written after the fact, then they wouldn't be prophecies. But they were written before the birth of Jesus Christ, which helps us to know for a fact that they are, in fact, prophecies. All the Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament predate the first coming of Christ. And it's also important to note that there's no natural way for a person to fulfill all of those prophecies, mathematically speaking. The mathematical probability of one person fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of the Messiah, it's never naturally going to happen. Therefore, if it does happen, it must be a supernatural event, mathematically speaking. And according to the eyewitness testimonies from the first century, Jesus has, in fact, fulfilled all of those messianic prophecies. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that point to his supernatural birth. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that point to his substitutionary sacrifice. And Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies that point to his postmortem resurrection. 
What this means then is that the historical evidence provides us with all the proof that we need to know for a fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And knowing that Jesus has fulfilled all of the prophecies that point to his first advent, well, then it only stands to reason that he's going to fulfill the prophetic promises that he made uh, regarding his second coming. If against all odds he fulfilled the prophecies that point to his first coming, then it only stands to reason that he's going to fulfill the promises that point to his return. I wouldn't gamble against it because the odds would be against you. Therefore, rather than allowing the mockery of the scoffers to scare us into silence, I encourage us to become believers who are equipped and able to defend the divine inspiration of our sacred scriptures, which is proven by the fact that these prophecies were written before the coming of Christ and then were proven uh, to have occurred by the eyewitness reports found in the first century. In this way, we'll be able to provide a reasonable response to those who mock our faith and the promises of God. And while Christians should be ready to defend our belief in scriptural inspiration, uh, we should also be ready to defend our belief in special creation. In order to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention now back to the point that Peter here is making. If you would look with me there at 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to draw your attention once again to verse 4 where Peter tells us that the scoffers are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now here in these verses we find Peter, he's helping his audience to understand that the unbelievers who scoff at the promise of Christ's second coming are also going to mock at the idea of a day of judgment. And this only makes sense. You know, the, those who reject the doctrine of Christ's second coming or they're also going to deny the day of judgment because that's what the, the, the return of Christ has to deal with. The second coming of Christ has everything to do with the day of judgment. And so if you mock the return of Christ, then it only stands the reason that you're going to reject the idea of this day of judgment. In order to better understand the disbelief of the scoffers who Peter tells us will rise up in these last days, I want to take a closer look at the argument that Peter says they're going to present. And if you would look with me again there in the middle of verse 4, here Peter tells us that the scoffers are going to reject, uh, reject the day of judgment by declaring this. They're going to say, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Or in other words, these skeptical scoffers are going to insist that the universe is just going to continue functioning just as it always has since the beginning of time without any sort of supernatural interruption. And just as Peter predicted, there are many scoffers in the world today who deny the day of judgment and instead they believe that the natural laws and processes that, uh, that we observe in the world today, they're just going to continue functioning in the same way and just for the rest of time. The basis for this scientific prediction well, it stems from their commitment to the doctrine of uniformity, or, or this is also known as uniformitarianism, uh, which is to say that the universe has always operated according to the natural laws and processes that we observe today. Therefore, there's no reason to believe that this is ever going to be interrupted uh, by, by some you know, deity from heaven coming in and just interrupting everything, right? 
Simply put, the skeptical scoffer who denies the day of judgment, uh, they're quick to insist that there's no scientific reason to believe in a day of judgment. And the reason why is, uh, according to them, there's no scientific reason to believe in some sort of heavenly creator who created the universe. In other words, they don't believe in a heavenly creator, therefore they don't think that the creator is ever going to come back and judge us. Rather than embracing the promises that God presented all throughout his holy word, they instead embrace the scientific promises of uniformitarianism by insisting that the natural laws that will, that will just continue to operate in the future, just as they always have since the universe somehow sprang into existence. As we consider the skepticism of these scoffers who reject the second coming of Christ, it's important for us to understand that most of them uh, have been duped into embracing a false dichotomy, which is centered around the belief that people of faith must reject science and people of science must reject faith. This is a false dichotomy, and yet, uh, you know, how many people do we know have embraced it? Chances are you know someone who's told you at some point in time, well, you can have your faith, I'm a person of science. As if somebody, somebody who embraces faith can't also be scientific, right? It's false. If you find yourself face-to-face with a person who insists that they don't believe in God because there's no scientific reason to believe in God, I would encourage you to ask them a very simple question, and the question is this. Scientifically speaking, how did nothing create something? You know, give me the science on that. How did nothing blow up and become everything? This simple question is based on the Kalam cosmological argument, which was originally stated in this way. Every being which begins has a cause for its beginning. Now, the world is a being which begins, therefore it possesses a cause for its beginning. William Lane Craig breaks this argument down into three simple statements. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. The second statement, the universe began to exist. The third statement, the universe has a cause of its beginning. So then the question is this, what caused the universe? We exist in a finite universe. Therefore, what caused it to begin to exist? Scientifically speaking, the universe couldn't have caused itself. From nothing, nothing will come. And so what could have caused the universe? Well, with this question in mind, I want to consider the answer that Peter presents here in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me there at verse 5, here Peter again declares, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old. Here in this verse, Peter here is reminding his readers that the universe was created by what? By the word of God. This, of course, is a reference back to the creation account that Moses presented in the book of Genesis. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the first book of the Bible. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 because it's there in the first chapter of Genesis where we find Moses. He's presenting us with the creation account which he received from the Lord. Moses wasn't there at the beginning, but God was. And God gave Moses this information. And with this as our focus, if you would look with me here at Genesis chapter 1, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here in Genesis 1, verse 1, Moses declares, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now here in these verses we find Moses, he's answering the creation question, and he does this by informing us about this infinite God, this God who has always existed, and and this infinite God is the one who created the entire universe out of nothing. As a matter of fact, uh, that word created, it's translated from the Hebrew word bara, and in this context, the word bara speaks of something being created from nothing. So according to Moses here, The finite universe was specially created by an infinite God who spoke the creation into existence. As a matter of fact, look with me there at Genesis 1 again. I want to draw your attention beginning at verse 3. Here we learn that God said, let there be light. And there was light. That word said, well, it's translated from a Hebrew word which was used in reference to a verbal command. Therefore, God said, he spoke, he gave a verbal command which began the universe. He said, let there be light, and there was light. We should also notice how God continues to speak forth the creation with a word, and he did this over the course of six days. As a matter of fact, look with me there at verse 6. Here Moses writes, then God said, let there be a firmament. And in verse 9, he said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And in verse 11, Moses tells us that God said, Let the earth bring forth grass. And if you continue on with the rest of the creation account, you'll see that the universe and everything in it was created by the spoken word of God. God said to these things that they should be created, and they were created. And he did this over the course of six days. I realize that skeptical scoffers are quick to ridicule the biblical account of this six-day creation, and one reason why is because they've been led to believe that the universe is actually billions and billions of years old. Now, if you're wondering why they believe in billions and billions of years, well, it's because they have to explain how nothing exploded and became everything. Think about it for a moment. If you begin with the unfounded presupposition that special creation must be immediately ruled out because we uh, reject the idea of a God creating, and now you have to explain how nothing blew up and became everything, how long do you think that would take? How long would it take for the natural processes of evolution to transform nothing into sentient beings who are not only able to reproduce, but also engage in scientific research? How long does it take for stardust to become humans? Without debate, the theory of evolution involves a natural process that must occur so slowly that it demands billions of years just to believe in the theory. You see, if a scientist came up here this morning and told you that I saw a dinosaur lay an egg and a baby bird hatched out of that egg, uh, you know, in one day, we would laugh at that. Wait, you're you're telling me that a dinosaur laid an egg and and a bird came out? Makes no sense. And yet, how many people believe that dinosaurs evolved into birds over the course of 120 million years? Oh, you put 120 million years between the dinosaur and the bird, and now we have something that's believable, right? If a scientist told us that a great ape gave birth to a human baby in the zoo across town, we would think that's ridiculous. You know, I'm being punked here. Nobody would believe it. 
And yet, how many people believe that humans have evolved from ape-like ancestors over the course of 11 million years? You insert 11 million years, and now it's like, oh, yeah. Totally believable, right? Simply put, Darwin's theory of evolution is only believable if the universe has enough time for the natural process of evolution to take place. In an attempt to prove this naturalistic fairy tale, evolutionists will point to the geologic column which contains the fossil record, and and they insist uh, that the fossil record, uh, which slowly formed over the past 4.4 billion years, has all the evidence that we need to, to support this belief that one species slowly evolved into the next. What most people fail to realize is that fossils are actually dated with a method that begins with an evolutionary presupposition. You see, they date the fossil by the rock that it was found in. Well, how do they know the date of the rock? Uh, By the, the fossil that they found in the rock. What do we call this? A circular argument. They use the fossil to date the rock, and they use the rock to date the fossil. And if they find a, a, you know, a rock with a really old fossil at the very top, well, this must have been all turned upside down then. Why? Well, because of the fossil that we found in it. It's not good science. It's just evolutionary presuppositions confirming evolutionists, uh, confirming evolution to evolutionists. Most people are also unaware of the fact that there isn't a single example of a transitional form found in the entire fossil record. We have lots of fossils, just no fossils of transitional forms. And they've duped us into thinking that we're looking for a missing link. No. We're looking for all the missing links. All the links between one species to the next are missing and if evolution were true and, you know, we've, you know, evolved from goo to you by way of the zoo, you, we should find transitional forms between all of the different species. And yet we don't find a single transitional form in the fossil record. With that being the case, I'd like to present you with a better explanation for the fossil record. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention back to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to draw your attention back to verse 5. Here, Peter declares, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Here in these verses we learn that the scoffers who reject The biblical account of creation will also reject the biblical account of the flood. They'll insist that the world was never flooded uh, with water. Oh, sure, there were, you know, uh, smaller, you know, locational floods, but, you know, never, never the whole world. What they fail to understand is that the flood of Noah is able to perfectly explain the creation of the fossil record. The reason why is due to the fact that the flood of Noah was a global catastrophe that drowned, covered, and fossilized all the creatures dwelling on the earth within a relatively short amount of time. Therefore, those who attempt to use the fossil record as evidence uh, for an old earth, I must insist that they're failing to properly interpret the data. And In order to further make my case, I should point out that we actually find marine life fossils on the peaks of every mountaintop. Uh, For example, Scientists have found fossils of whales and other marine animals in in mountain sediments found in the Andes. 
Marine fossils are also found high up in the Himalayas, which is the world's tallest mountain range. And while it's true that we find marine life fossils on the peaks of the tallest mountains, what we don't find in any of uh, these mountains or, or in any other strata, uh, we don't find any transitional form fossilized. So, so what does that say to us? If we properly interpret this data, what we must conclude is that all land was underwater at some point in time. It was underwater at a point in time when a whole lot of stuff got buried and killed and fossilized, and none of it produces anything of a transitional form. Therefore, the fossil record fails to support the theory of evolution, but rather it seems to support the flood of Noah. Sadly, though, the world is filled with people who have been duped by the secular scientists who are willing to alter the evidence to fit their agenda as they argue against the biblical account of creation. And it's sad to say that there are many Christians who have been duped into embracing the theory of evolution, and as a result, uh, there are many in the church today who no longer believe in the creation account found in Genesis chapter 1. They, they see Genesis 1 as a piece of poetry and, and just an interesting story, but not history. Instead, they attempt to uh, you know, tie their faith in Jesus together with the theory of evolution, and they embrace, embrace something that we call uh, theistic evolution. Theistic evolution, well, this is based on the belief that God caused the Big Bang, but then just allowed evolution to run its course. Christian, listen. I want to tell you with all certainty, there's absolutely no way to reconcile the biblical account of creation with the theory of evolution. They just can't be reconciled. And seeing how the finite creation demands an infinite creator, well then, it only stands to reason that uh, those who begin with the presupposition that we have to rule out the idea of a creating God and we have to explain how nothing became something, well, we don't have to do that, Christian. We can just accept God and his word and the testimony that he presented about the creation of the universe. The one who created the universe is the one who can tell us how he went about it. That's good science. You see, science is based on observation. And the only one who was there to observe the creation was God. Why don't we just take his word for it then? Why don't we just accept what he said about it? Rather than listening to the secular skeptics who scoff at the biblical account of creation, I encourage you to receive the testimony of our creator who assures us that he created the universe and everything in it in six days. The Lord confirms this fact in Exodus chapter 20. It's there where he instructs Moses to keep the Sabbath law. And it's important to understand what he said there in Exodus chapter 20. He says this, he says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In other words, the original days of creation it provides us with the basis for our week. And listen, if the creation account carries with it the idea that you know, each day of creation were these long periods of time, why didn't Moses walk away from that and think, okay, God, so what you're telling me here is that you want me to work six long periods of time and then rest on a seventh long period of time just like you did, right? 
No, he walks away from you know, this, this time with the Lord there on Mount Sinai. He brings back down the law, and, and he establishes a seven-day week, six days of work, a seventh day of creation, because that's what God did in creation. I realize it's difficult for many people to believe that it only took God six days to create the entire universe, and yet I would remind you that the God of the Bible is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful. He is infinite in power, and therefore I must insist God could have created the universe in six seconds. Do you believe that? God could have created the entire universe and everything in it in six seconds. He also could have created the entire universe in six billion years. Both of those things are possibilities. So what did he say he did? Well, he tells us that he created the universe in six days. And then he rested on the seventh. And he did this as an example, which was intended for our benefit. And so with that, I just suggest, let's take God's word for it. He said he did it in six days. There's no scientific reason to reject it, therefore let's believe it and let's defend it. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, Christians should not only be ready to defend our belief in scriptural inspiration as well as our belief in special creation, but Christians should also be ready to defend our belief in supernatural resurrection. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention back to the point that Peter is making here in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse 7. Here Peter tells that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, as we begin to examine these verses, I should take a moment to point out that the believers who attempt to reconcile the biblical account of creation with the theory of evolution, they oftentimes come here to 2 Peter chapter 3, they grab verse 8, they pull it out of context, and they use it as a biblical basis for turning the six days of creation into long ages. Now, the first problem with this position is based on the fact that this would only add up to 6,000 years. I mean, if we take this literally and, and, and you know, equate every day of creation to 1,000 years, then it's 6,000 years. And according to the theory of evolution, uh, 6,000 years still doesn't pri provide enough time for the natural processes of evolution to produce sentient beings from stardust. Not only that, but listen, if we grant the idea that each day uh, may have been more than a thousand years and that this is just, you know, uh, the Lord just speaking poetically about each day being a very long period of time, if we grant this idea, we're still left with even more questions about the order that the Lord presented back in Genesis chapter 1. And just for a, an example, uh, in the creation account of Genesis 1, God created the plant life on day 3. And then on day 4, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now think about it for a moment. If each day is a long period of time, maybe a million or billion years, how could the plants exist on the earth here for thousands or millions or billions of years before God finally gets around to the formation of the sun? It just doesn't make sense. Again, I, I must insist, there's no way for us to reconcile the biblical account of creation with the theory of evolution. And if you're a Christian who, up until this point in time, has uh, been attempting to, to, to tie the two together, please trust me when I tell you, it just doesn't work. 
I would also point out that the immediate context of this passage has nothing to do with creation and everything to do with resurrection and judgment. Uh, with this in mind, notice with me again there, beginning at verse 7. Here Peter declares the heavens and the earth which are now preserved. See, we've moved on from creation, and now we're talking about preservation. The heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What does it have to do with? Well, look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Peter, he's addressing the arguments of those scoffers who were insisting that the day of the Lord is never going to take place, and the reason why is due to the fact that it's been so long since Jesus promised to return. Now, the fact is, it has been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, and yet at the same time, according to this text, that's like two days to God. That's the point that Peter's making. You see this as, you know, 2,000 years, you know, too long. And to God, it's been two days. Because a day is, is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years like one day. Or for the scoffers who take the earthly calendar and they use this as a basis for dismissing the day of judgment, they're making a huge mistake in thinking that the Lord is supposed to do things according to our timetable. It's like, you know, Jesus, if you had come back maybe a thousand years afterwards, then I would have believed. But 2,000 years, that's too long. Don't be ridiculous. The Lord has his plan, and it's perfect. And we would do well to patiently wait for it. Now, do I wish that we could just go ahead and wrap this thing up today? Yeah, you bet. Would I love to get off of this planet that's falling apart? Would I love to escape this world where the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and people are just becoming more and more ungodly every day? Would I love to be in the presence of my Savior today at this very moment? Yes, of course. But I'll patiently wait for God to unfold his perfect plan. I want to also consider the arguments of those who deny the day of judgment because they just don't believe in the afterlife at all. These people that we refer to as materialists, they insist that there's nothing immaterial at all. Nothing immaterial exists. And therefore, uh, there's no reason to fear a day of judgment because there's no reason to believe in an afterlife. Now, if you ever find yourself face-to-face -face with a materialist who insists that everything in the universe is made up of matter, uh, you have to ask them to explain the existence of immaterial laws. For example, uh, the immaterial laws of logic that they're failing to use. The immaterial laws of logic are universal laws that uh, the materialist is attempting to use in order to prove their position. Uh, what they're failing to recognize is that they're using immaterial laws that are beyond the matter of their brain, and yet they have no explanation for immaterial laws of logic. Their attempt to use immaterial laws of logic and impose those immaterial laws upon you is only proof that there is at least one immaterial thing that exists, the immaterial laws of logic. And if there's one immaterial thing like the immaterial laws of logic, then what's to say there aren't other immaterial things out there? I would also remind you of the fact that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after he died on the cross, and this evidence actually lends itself to helping us to see that there is some sort of afterlife seeing how the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is supported by both biblical and non-biblical sources from the first and second century, I would, I would just you know, point out that the evidence 
uh, has led one scholar named N.T. Wright to declare this. He says, these three great facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the origin of the Christian faith all point unavoidably to one conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. In other words, the most reasonable person in the world must draw the conclusion from the evidence that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, just as he promised he would. And what this means is that we can believe in the afterlife. Why do I say that? Well, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said. It's in John chapter 5. It's verses 28 and 29 where Jesus declares, Do not marvel, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. According to the Lord Jesus, who has risen from the grave, Everyone will eventually experience a supernatural resurrection. We will all eventually rise up from the grave. And while it's easy for the skeptic to scoff at this promise, I would remind you that the Lord Jesus has proven this by himself rising up from the grave. Therefore, we'll do well to take his word over the arguments of skeptical scoffers. And his word, well, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 The Lord Jesus confirms the resurrection of every person as he refers to those who will go away to everlasting punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Now, in order to better understand the resurrection that results in judgment, I want to look again here at 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll draw your attention once again to verse 7 where Peter declares, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, God not only spoke forth creation with a word, but it's the same word that's now preserving the universe until the day of judgment. And on that day, those who reject the Lord Jesus will be condemned to everlasting destruction. The prophet Daniel confirms this in Daniel chapter 12, where he declares, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. Or in other words, those who die in their sins will be cast into the lake of fire forevermore. And on that day, they'll realize that there is an afterlife. And on that day, they'll realize that they rejected the one who could save them from everlasting torment. That being the case, we can rejoice in the Peter that, uh, point that Peter goes on to make here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look with me once again at verse 9. Here Peter declares, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here in this verse we find Peter, he's reminding his readers that the Lord doesn't want to condemn the ungodly. The Lord doesn't want to send people to hell. He's not up in heaven just like, you know, just, I can't wait for the day of judgment. I'm going to. No, he's patient with us. He's long suffering toward us. He's patiently suffering the wickedness of this world in order to give every person the opportunity to repent. And, and I'm glad that he's God and I'm not. 
Because when I see mass shootings and I see pedophiles and I see you know, people doing the wicked things that they do, I'm just kind of like, God, just, just destroy them. Today, do it. But he patiently waits because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. That word repentance, well, it's translated from a Greek word which means a change of mind. This is the same word that Jesus used when he informed his audience that he has come to call sinners to repentance. He's called sinners to change their minds. And specifically, we need to change our minds about the need for salvation. The fact is, most people believe that they're good enough to get into heaven by their own good works. I've personally shared my faith with thousands and thousands of people for years and years. I came to Christ back in the mid-90s, and soon after, I started sharing my faith with people. And I can't even tell you how many times I've stood face-to-face with a person, sharing my faith with them, engaging in apologetics and listening to their arguments. And more often than not, the person is standing in the belief that they're not that bad, not bad enough for hell. It's one of the most common objections to the gospel message that I've heard. I'm not that bad of a person. Most people will think that hell is reserved for murderers and for pedophiles and for the worst of the worst. And, and so the, the common argument is, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. All the while, what they're failing to recognize is that God must punish every sin perfectly. How do you convince the person who thinks that they're good enough to get into heaven? How do you convince them that they need to repent and that they need to trust in Jesus for salvation? Well, in my opinion, the best approach is to help them to first understand that Jesus is the standard. You see, if I compare myself to a murderer, I'm way better. I've never murdered anybody. If I compare myself to the pedophile, I'm way better. If I compare myself to the, to the mass shooter, I'm way better. If I compare myself to the philanthropist who gave up all their money to help the poor and spends every waking hour of their life you know, sacrificially serving you know, the, the needy, I'm not that good. And so what's the standard? Jesus is the standard. And Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned once, offered himself a sacrifice for sins, and was accepted by God the Father. The evidence of this is seen in the resurrection and physical ascension into heaven. Jesus is the standard, and therefore the standard is perfection. It's a standard that we've all fallen short of. And this is the defense that we must offer to those who think they're good enough. We must help them to understand that if they've sinned once, they've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And God is not going to judge on a curve. This isn't the University of Texas. He's not going to judge on a curve. He's not going to say, well, you know, you weren't as bad as that guy, so, you know, we'll let you slide on through. We'll give you a passing grade. It's not going to happen like that. If you've fallen short of God's perfect standard, then what we deserve is judgment and punishment. 
Thankfully for us, Jesus has already received the punishment that we deserve. Jesus is the one who died in our place so that he can save us from the day of judgment. And and now those who trust in him can look forward to our supernatural resurrection as we arise to everlasting life. Therefore, as we go out and share our faith with others, let's make sure to help people to understand that we all deserve the wrath of God. And the only hope that we have is to change our minds, to recognize we can't save ourselves. And in that repentance, let's then turn and trust in Jesus Christ so that we can escape the resurrection that results in condemnation. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I realize I've covered a ton of ground here, and I realize that, you know, we're probably going to leave and forget half the things that I said, and that might be good, but... But it's important for us to understand that we've barely scratched the surface on all of these topics. There's so much more. There's so much more that we can dig into, and and there's so much more that we can use to defend our faith. Therefore, it's my hope that this study will will, will just give you uh, just that desire to go and study more Christian apologetics, that that you'll learn how to defend your faith. And and a good way to go about that is to go onto our website and, and type into the search engine apologetics. It'll pull up a bunch of studies, and you can just begin to listen to more messages on Christian apologetics apologetic so that you can be ready to defend your faith. As you do, uh, you're not only getting equipped to be able to give reasonable responses to those who ask you uh, for the reason you believe in Jesus Christ, but listen, you'll become even more confident in the Christian faith. You'll see that the evidence is actually on our side. And you'll be able to defend your faith in scriptural inspiration. You'll you'll be able to show people that we do believe and and have evidence to believe in the divine inspiration of God's word. As you continue studying Christian apologetics, you'll be able to defend your belief in special creation and you'll be able to help others to see that there's good scientific reasons to believe in Genesis chapter 1. As you continue to study Christian apologetics, you'll be able to defend your belief in supernatural resurrection. You'll be able to help other people to see that we're all going to stand before God one day. The question is, do you want to be condemned or do you want to be accepted in the beloved by faith in Jesus Christ? Let's continue to study Christian apologetics so that we can defend our faith. But for now, I'd like to conclude this study by assuring you that the evidence supports our faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't need to fear the skeptical scholars, or the, the, the skeptical scoffers, I should say. And, and you, you know, that's typically the way we feel about it. You know, the minute we find ourselves face-to-face with someone that scoffs and mocks our belief in Jesus Christ, we tend to shrink back and, and silence ourselves because uh, we don't feel prepared or equipped to defend the faith. Let's, let's get equipped so that we can stand face-to-face with the skeptical scoffers who are mocking our faith in Jesus Christ. And rather than fearing them, let's get equipped so that we can present them with a reasonable defense for our faith. And as we present them with a reasonable defense for our faith, let's pray for them so that they might repent and so that they might trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word.